we'd like a word. About romance and support networks. You're listening to We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. Hello. And our special guests, Becky Hunter, author of One Moment, and Georgina Moore, author of The Garnet Girls. Hello. 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 <laughs> I think one of the weird things is that you two both wrote your books on a boat, on the <laughs> same boat at the same time. <laughs> This is a bit odd. <laughs> so we had a little writing retreat. This is retreat. Georgina now. Hello, everyone. It's Georgina here, author of The Garnet Girls. We um we had a little writing retreat, a, a two-person writing retreat. I'm lucky enough to have a houseboat in the sea in the Isle of Wight, which we rent out for holiday rentals and go whenever we can. And so we went there because I think words need to be got. We words needed to be written, uh, and that was great. We got a lot done. We got loads done. I think I wrote about forty thousand words of one moment on the boat, um, and we were there what for a weekend, long weekend, Friday. Yeah. Night. And George had very quite kindly invited me, <clears throat> and the Isle of Wight is where the Garnet Girls is set. So she took. We went along walks on the beach, and she showed me the house that had inspired it. And her dog Bomber was there. So we took him for walks and just brainstormed characters and plot points and read aloud to each other in the evening. And it was all very the the, re- the, the reading aloud bit was good because we drank vodka at the same time. <laughs> you have to keep your throats lubricated. Of course. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Liquid inspiration. That's what you call it, isn't it? That sounds like an excellent that's... idea. This is interesting to me, see, because I have known authors, you know, some well-known, some not so well-known, where they've done exactly what you've done in the fact they've taken a cottage or a place to go to as a writer's retreat, or they've even applied for a writer's retreat and actually gone to this Mm. place. Then they've they've so enjoyed the place, they've forgotten to write anything. (laughs) Now... So it, true, isn't it? Isn't it too much of a distraction? You know, when you're in a lovely place and and you've got lovely surroundings. Uh, I mean, surely what you really want is to put someone in a really horrible little sweaty room <laughs> where you don't want to go out the door. You just want to sit and write something that's a nicer, happier place than where you actually are. Well, we were really strict on. We had like one upstairs, one downstairs, and then we'd have lunch, and then we'd switch. And I think it's sort of like reporting into anyone. So, like every couple of hours, be like, "How many words have you written?" Yeah. Um. So then it became. I think if you're if you're doing it and you're both quite good at getting stuff done, then it can be helpful. I imagine if you do it and both of you are like, "Oh, we'll just go for a lovely walk and we won't do anything else," then it can probably be. There's a lot of writers who don't feel comfortable writing at home because they can't separate the two things they feel like they've got to go to work I mean Roald Dahl famously had his shed obviously in the news at the moment and you know Stephen King had a place specially built so he has to go out of the house Mm. walk along go down a cliff to this room to Mm. actually write because then you feel like you're going to work it's a separation of house and home and I kind of get that well you've got that now haven't you um yeah I know but to be honest I just think I could probably write anywhere it's more about the for me it was I think the thing that reason Becky and I got quite a lot done is that usually there's a lot going on in our lives you know we have these jobs in publishing and you know usually there's so and I have two kids and and you know there's always something happening so I think it was just having that space from other things that's really valuable and into and I was often writing downstairs in bed actually and actually was finding that quite um 
constructive, really, a kind of Nancy Mitford-esque kind of taking <laughs> to your bed and not on a typewriter, sadly, but... So I think I think I could probably write anywhere, but I think it's just to be honest, it's a space from from other jobs and other people, really. Did you find any um, challenge in justifying the time? Because you do have busy jobs. Did it help to justify taking the time away from those that the two of you were doing it together? Yes, I, I know what I, I know what you mean. I I think it took me a while, and it does take a while as a debut writer to really think, oh am I doing this? Am I really being a writer? And I, I think there was a moment when I started to get some, with the Garnet Girls, I started to get some early feedback from people like Becky and other authors that I knew who were enjoying it. And I started to think, oh, okay, actually, this is this is something people are liking. This is something that's really happening. And then I became a bit more strict about carving out my writing time. I said, so I'm doing this properly. This isn't a dream. It's really happening. Yeah, I think... The fact that I think for me, the fact that we were we were going away and we were talking so much about characters and our books and what we wanted from writing on those walks and bits in between writing that you then do get very focused and you're like, okay, this is the time. And actually, then when you come away again is the harder point to keep the momentum going. But I guess it's giving yourself permission to write as well. And that probably is easier with someone else around um for me it's also the sense of like almost reporting into someone so you couldn't just do other work or do something else because then you're like well no you're supposed to be here to write <laughs> yeah I mean it's something I still struggle with quite a lot actually so I'm supposed to be writing my second book now and have other work to do and and I always feel like the other work should come first and that writing should very much be like almost like the hobby or the or the thing that you do in the background when really actually once you've got a book deal you are technically being paid to write it just doesn't feel quite the same mm, that's so true I think I think I'm supposed to be doing now you know a second draft of my new book but obviously I'm, I've got the Garnet Girls only just come out so I'm busy doing you know events and PR and very lucky and grateful for every opportunity I have to do and won't say no uh, to anything knowing from the other side as a publicist how important every little thing is but it does just mean that everything else gets pushed 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 but it hopefully that can't go on forever because I've got to deliver a second book so there what, you are. what's it called the second one well it hasn't that I'm not going to tell you because okay, <laughs> okay what about you Becky what about you the second one I haven't got a title for it go yeah. terrible <laughs> Uh, the title that I'm calling it is a terrible title. Um, oh, no, don't say it then. And my editor asked me, actually, so she checked in like two weeks ago and was like, so, you know, coming up to publication now, one moment, just thought I should check in with how book two is coming. And in my head, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> um, but she asked, you know, and, and do you have a title? And um, I had to tell her my terrible one, which she just hasn't replied to. <laughs> <laughs> But you got you got to go through that. I mean, the book will find the book will find its own title. I they always find their own oh, title. Yeah. You'll, you'll know when it's the right one. I find titles you'll so hard. Them. You, I mean, the Garnet Girls. You thought about different titles, didn't you? But it stayed the Garnet Girls ultimately. Mm. Um, and actually, quite a few people have said how it just sort of resonates as a name. I think I like the fact yeah. that it's got that double meaning of the the stone, the Garnet, but also it's got the literary, slightly literary, because there's a Garnet literary family. So I think it just is something that resonates a bit with people and people are seem to be remembering it, which is good. But yes, I was going to call it The Ordinary Husbands. 
because that is actually what Margot, the matriarch, wants for her daughters. She wants them to have nice, safe husbands who will look after them, not the drunk, sexy poet that she married. Um, so it did have that title in mind. But yeah, once I once I got the Garnet Girls, then I, it stuck. Yeah, mm. I, I found it one moment um, was actually my agent's title. So it didn't have a title the whole time I was writing it until about a week before it went out on submission. And then she was like, right, we need a title. <laughs> so we worked backwards. And then when it mm. went out, um, my editor went through a whole stage of thinking maybe we shouldn't have that title. And we had about two weeks of really brainstorming other titles just to circle back around. So I think titles are something I'm not very good at naturally, having not come up with any of them so far. <laughs> In the same way that water finds its own level, they will turn up. They nearly yeah. always turn yeah. up. We, I mean, mm. I've, I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of authors uh, over the last years. I've, I've very rarely met any of them who aren't happy with the titles that they eventually mm. settled on. It's a curious phenomenon, but but it, it, they will find their own titles. Mm. So it, because you both work in book promotion, particularly for Midas PR, is that something that agents think is a bonus, extra attractive, or do they think, oh, no, they think <laughs> they know everything. They're just going to be difficult to handle or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think there was a good story that my editor told at my um, launch party which was that, you know, when my book went out on submission, obviously she knew who I was and she'd heard of me, we'd met at things. And and I think they'd had a conversation of kind of like, oh, you know. And then I think she sent a text to the rest of the team sort of saying, oh, this Georgina Moore book is really good, you know. So they had to balance, I think. I think they had to balance on the deliberation of would I be an asset? Uh, luckily, some nice people told them that I would. But with also exactly what you just said, which is, will she be a pain in our backside, basically saying, sending the seventh email of the day about Amazon metadata. And of course, I think I like to think that I've settled somewhere in the middle, but who knows? Yeah, you, th you think they see it as an absolute godsend, because I know chatting to my agent um, just recently about a, a possible project. He said, you know, the questions that people are asking from the publishers is, you know, why this book? Uh, why now? And why this author? The answer they want for the why this author is they've got a squillion followers on TikTok or, you know, they've been on Mock the Week or whatever. So <laughs> if you've actually got someone who is capable of self-promotion and obviously knows what they're doing, you'd think mm. they'd see that definitely as an asset. And there's a fourth thing then to those three questions that you just asked, Steve, which is how scared are we of this author because we've got this <laughs> other power that they can wield in revenge and destruction on everyone else and everything yeah, we yeah. love if we're not nice to them and give them good results? <laughs> I think um, ultimately, I, 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 think, I think probably most people do see it as an asset in the, in the way that anything, if you understand the industry and kind of have some some context whether that's you know you, you know other authors or you know journalists or whatever that I mean that's never going to unless you're hated it's never going to be a bad mm, thing mm. um but and you're finding um, out <laughs> what I um what I really like and have learned so I had um two books that went out on submission before and I had agents and I had a lot of excitement at agent stage where people were saying that, that it would sell for lots of money and sell internationally and then it didn't so it didn't get published no editors were inter interested and that actually happened one of those books was a year before one moment was submitted so not that different in terms of my career 
so it was a kind of eye-opener as as it should be really that it doesn't matter if you ultimately if you if you know everybody in the industry and they still don't like the book there's not really a shortcut I think it can be a good thing and a kind of once you've decided you they love the book and they want to buy it maybe they're thinking about how to use you and I think you had those conversations Mm. but but ultimately they I think it it's the same thing isn't it It comes down to whether they like the book or not and that's good for people listening who are thinking Oh yeah, they're insiders. They had yeah. it easy. That's mm. you know, uh, from what you've just said, you mm. didn't have it easy at all. You thought you were there and got knocked back, just like anybody yeah. else. Yeah, at the acquisition stage, I, I don't think I, I think, and we've both been in the other side, haven't we, George? Where we've sat mm. the other side of the table and been in those acquisition meetings, and ultimately, there, there might be like extras that you discuss in terms of oh, this person does have a following or whatever. But unless they're massive or a Mm. massive celebrity, that's never going to be a reason Mm. in and of itself to buy the book. (laughs) I think think the biggest lesson is that as you are pursuing your career and, you know, that you don't make enemies and that you remember the karma and that you big up other authors and that you big up the people that work for you along the way that will one day you'll be working for them and you 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 have that attitude of support because let's face it that's what we're really talking about now is is supporting each other and if you follow that path then the rewards come but I mean we've all sat Becky's right she and I have sat there in acquisition meetings and, and, and what we've done is work, worked you know in with journalists say on books uh, and then the, the the worst thing is you find out sort of as you're pitching this journalist thinking you're going to get articles here articles there features here because they're a journalist that they've you know pissed off a lot of people along the way oh I yeah mean, that happens a lot and of course at acquisition that we don't know that we just see the public persona and we think oh they're so popular and they've got like 10 million followers on insta and but yeah, it's really, really interesting how often that happens. You suddenly hit a wall of people who are just not getting back to you. They don't want to get involved because they've had run-ins or whatever. Um, so I think the biggest lesson for anyone is, you know, support other authors, whoever you are, whether you're in the industry or out of the industry, support people along the way um, because that's how you'll want to be treated yourself. And maybe Very we should so. hear about one of the books because there's lots we want to ask you, but we want to hear about the books themselves and maybe hear a bit from them. I don't know which of you would like to go first. Okay. It's over to you. The boat lady. Uh, tell tell us a bit about the Garnet Girls and is there a part of it, that a short part you could read? So the Garnet Girls is really about a family, um, a mother and three daughters, and their father left them when they were very young, uh, just children. Uh, he was an alcoholic and he just abandons the family. Uh, it's Margot's great epic love. And she sort of doesn't really, it takes a long time for her to recover. And she never really wants to speak about Richard after that day. And we pick up again with the girls in their 30s, um, seeing how the loss of the father really has impacted them. And the push-pull of their relationship with their mother, who's incredibly charismatic, uh, very much centre stage, matriarch. Um, But wants things with the girls that perhaps they don't really want for themselves, like nice, safe men who are going to look after them. And as we all know, nobody really wants to follow the romantic advice of their mother. And so that's what this really explores. And so I'll just read a little bit in the prologue 
to the book, you see the children in the past when they were young uh, and then you go forward. And there are a few flashbacks in the book just so you can see the the impact of what happened to them in their childhood as well as, as what's happening now in the present day. So this is the prologue. Margot let the heavy door slam behind her, her hand lingering on the cold brass of the doorknob. She felt the heat envelop her, the air thick and still with it, no sea breeze to bring relief. There was even a heat haze over the sea blurring the horizon. Sasha's small sticky hand slipped out of hers and she was off, taking Sandco's steep steps with hops and jumps. Da, she kept calling. She was chasing her father. She was always chasing her father. Margot watched as the white blonde curls shot along the sea wall above the beach, the curve of her cheek slathered in sun cream. Margot shouted, not near the edge, hearing the echoes of all the times growing up. This had been shouted at her. Immy, go with her. Make sure she's okay. Your father's too far away. Imogen obediently trailed down the steps, book in hand. She moved slowly, dreamily. Margot noticed how knotted her long hair was. There was a huge bird's nest at the back. People would think she wasn't coping if they saw it. Quicker than that, she's already at the walkway. Margot felt Rachel lurking beside her, two enormous picnic bags at her feet. Margot looked at her eldest daughter's face, which always seemed to be set in a scowl these days. She was wiser than she should be at nine, clever and sarcastic. She did not help the atmosphere in the house with her sharp observations. What's wrong now? Didn't you see? Dad just left. He didn't take anything for the picnic. Of course, he did take something for the picnic. <laughs> a <laughs> bottle of wine. <laughs> Which I thought it felt very real. And there's and there's a bit not long after, you know, when they're older, a, a, a really, really awkward proposal, <laughs> which oh. I enjoyed. <laughs> In Venice. That made me laugh. When you were writing the book, and I suppose this is a question for you both, because of your experience in promoting books for other other people's books, and you've seen ones that didn't get chosen, you've seen ones that did get chosen and then sold, and ones that didn't sell so well, and ones that immediately had people going, oh, yes. Did those sort of lessons that you learned affect the content of your books? Or as some people say, comes out of my head, I just write it, and to hell with whatever anyone thinks. I'll take my chances. Or did you have that factored in even as you constructed it, thought of characters and where it would go? Do you want to go, Becky? Or... So the first time I tried to write, um, well, the first time was when I was 21 and that was terrible, even though I was convinced it was going to be a bestseller. And that was before I got my job in publishing. But the, um, very, the first book I got an agent for uh, was about 10 years ago now. And... That I'd very much written without, I, I was an assistant, um, publicity assistant. So I was in the industry, but I was still very much learning. And I'd written it alongside and kind of evenings alongside the job. And it, knowing a bit about the industry didn't impact it at all. And then that, that didn't get acquired. And then I tried to write, like I said, a couple of books that didn't, that didn't get published. But I was at that stage seeing all the hype around surfing books I'd worked on um, I worked on The Couple Next Door by Shari Lepena which was brilliant and um, at that time psychological thrillers were doing really really well and so I immediately tried to jump on that a little bit and tried to write a psychological thriller and I was very much sort of trying to chase the market in an, in a slightly weirdly panicked mode <laughs> 
that I wanted to write something that I thought would sell and I was desperate to be a writer and it sort of came from that rather than what I wanted to write and um I guess it's not a coincidence that those two books didn't sell and with one moment I'd actually so I'd taken a break me and uh, Georgina both worked at Headline and we headline publishing um, and we really left within I think about a month of each other and I moved abroad for 18 months and left publishing as a break and it was kind of during that time that I could take a step back and and figure out what I wanted to write and it and it took the break from the industry because for me it was so difficult trying to write something and not feeling like I should be writing what was doing well and hearing the conversations with editors was what they liked, what they didn't like. Having the conversations with journalists about how, what they were seeing, what they were seeing too much of, and seeing which books were kind of spiking up in the bestseller list. And, and you can almost pay far too much attention to it because, of course, it's impossible to replicate <laughs> as much as you think that you can. But that even all that said, you know, trying to step back and not let it impact the writing I think maybe you had a different experience, George, but for me, I, I found it so difficult. And even with one moment, I'd sort of thought, okay, a love story. And that was doing well. And it was only the reason that it worked was because I'd sort of managed to realise that they were the books that I loved growing up. I grew up like loving Marion Keys and Sophie Kinsella. And um, they were what I was reading as a teenager. And it kind of, I'd sort of forgotten that because I'd got so caught up in what I was reading for my job. Um, so that when I wrote it, it, it did start a little bit of an awareness of the market, but because I'd, I'd sort of remembered how much I loved it and then I could concentrate on the book itself. But I find it very difficult to separate. And even now writing the, the second book, I still see what is doing well and what, what everyone's talking about on, on social media. And um, I don't think it will ever be a part of the brain that you can't switch off completely. So that's why they say it's kind of a blessing and a pet curse, I suppose, to, to know about the industry. It's also kind of a frustration, I think, for most people. I mean, it, it's the sort of books I like to write. And indeed, the last three books I did write were very much my wheelhouse, as it were, is comedy. It's, you know, and we've got a huge, long tradition of writing comedy in this country, you know, going back to P.G. Woodhouse and, uh, you know, Jerome K. Jerome, right through to Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett, although that's sort of fantasy and science fiction, but also people like Tom Sharp. But those sorts of books I love. I love. Yeah. And so they influenced me. Of course they did. And I write that kind of book. But it's it's almost not depressing, but it, it's discouraging that you're writing this sort of book and you're driven to write this sort of book. And it's not the sort of book the market wants now. Yeah. In fact, most most bookshops you go into, there isn't a humor section anymore. There, there, there isn't a humorous writing. Mm. There's TV tie-ins, you know, and stuff with comedy shows. But that there's no humorous fiction section anymore. And yet... I don't know that I could write anything else. It, it's so, a it's a weird thing. I guess you sort of hit the nail on the head there in, in that I, I was talking from an industry perspective, but I think as an author anyway, beyond writing your debut where you have a sort of blissful ignorance from, from having I like worked with quite a lot of debut authors and, you know, then you have the second book syndrome, which has got a name for a reason because suddenly mm. you have to write something for the market to a deadline and you've got all this awareness of things doing well or not so well which you just don't have when you're a debut and I suppose the thing with being in the, in the industry is that you skip that state you don't have the ignorance with a debut novel because I guess as an author you're doing it as a career or or as part of you have career. no blissful ignorance yeah with the second book you've got the baggage of the first book as well because the readers yeah. will be wanting more of the same yes yeah. so, you know <laughs> 
did you have the same experience or a slightly different one, Georgina, with no, the content is, of your book? This is why it's so good to be old. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm 18 years older than Becky, so it, it was a completely different experience. I wrote a book, I don't know, 20 years ago or something when I was a, you know, girl about town in London because everyone was writing girl about town in London falls out of the Groucho Club, that kind of book. And I just realised it was rubbish because it wasn't different from anything. And so then I sort of shelved it and obviously was quite busy with the job and the kids and whatever. But in lockdown, I kind of had all this time because uh, so many elements of my job came out. I wasn't travelling, there weren't festivals, there weren't events, wasn't going in and out of Broadcasting House with authors. Um, so I kind of had a now or never moment. And I really, I don't know whether it was the separation, the time I'd had away from publishing, because Midas is, is, yes, we're in the heart of publishing as a promotional agency, but we also look after other arts and prizes and galleries. And I don't know whether it was that removal from publishing, whether it's my age, whether it was lockdown, but I very much wrote the book that was in me that needed to be written, that was calling to me, that the book I kind of wanted to read the kind of book I loved with some thoughts though about things I wanted to say at the heart one of which was having an older female protagonist who is feisty and a character and very much center stage and still loves life and is still having parties and having sex and because that is a frustration for me that the main book buying audience in this country 40 women plus who are a powerhouse of book sales basically are not often represented in fiction, commercial fiction, in any kind of meaningful, great way. Real, complicated, flawed women. I had a few things I wanted to do when people were reading it and comparing me to people. I, I you know, it, it was a real surprise to me, but that was the book. So I did have that separation, which was really important because I can see and understand what Becky is saying about what she went through about chasing the market. But in this instance with the Garlic Girls, that really didn't happen. The book just sort of came. We're coming to the end of part one of this episode of We'd Like a Word with Becky Hunter and her book One Moment. And we'll be hearing more about that in part two. And Georgina Moore and with her book, The Garnet Girls. And we'll also be hearing a little bit from Michael Douglas. Yeah, that yes, Michael Douglas. Th- that Michael Douglas. Mm. That Michael Douglas, yes. But until then, thanks for listening to part one. From me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we'll see you in part two of We'd Like a Word in a Moment. Mm-hmm.